0: And now, The Second Pearl, by Mike Bentley. Book One. Prologue. December 7th, 1941. Imperial Japanese Navy Lieutenant Matsuo Matsuzaki flared his Nakajima B-5N2 Type 97 Kate torpedo observation plane in preparation for landing on the carrier Akagi and expertly made tiny last-second adjustments before touching down on the gently rolling deck. With only a slight bump, the plane jerked to a halt after its tail hook caught the middle of resting cable, a routine end to an historic mission. Like every aspect of his flying, Matsuzaki had honed his skills during hundreds of such landings over the previous five years. He was one of Imperial Japan's best naval aviators, and was, at the moment, feeling triumphant exultation probably shared by every crew returning from their raid on the United States territory of Hawaii. They'd just destroyed or damaged several battleships, plus a host of other military ships, planes, additional facilities at the Pearl Harbor Naval Base, plus other targets on Oahu Island. But, as in every battle, their euphoria following the early morning attack was tinged with sadness, because 29 of their fellow air crews would never return to their carriers, or to their homes and families in Japan. Lieutenant Matsuzaki was the PIC, pilot in command, of the aircraft carrying the mission's overall leader, Imperial Japanese Navy Commander Mitsuo Fuchida, a veteran aviator who'd been the on-site orchestrator of the 360 dive bombers, torpedo planes, high-level bombers, and fighters that delivered the opening round of Japan's new war against America. But, tragically for Japan, their audacity and tactical triumph had the unintended strategic consequence of moving a reluctant United States, currently sitting mostly on the sidelines as a friend of Great Britain and her allies in Europe, to an economic powerhouse wholeheartedly committed in mass to defeating the Axis threat. But at the moment, none of that was known to Japan's heroes, and the K trundled slowly across the steel deck as Matsuzaki used his foot pedals to follow the directions of the controller. Finally, he received the signal to stop and parked the heavy plane and cut the engine. Relieved and shaking from a combination of adrenaline and fatigue, he breathed a sigh of relief and called back to Petty Officer First Class Nobu Mizuki, his excellent radio operator sitting in the third, rearmost seat. They exchanged some quick banter about the ten eager young sailors surrounding their airplane enthusiastic hands who would help fold the wings and push the aircraft to the nearby elevator for its trip down to the hangar deck below. They joked that these kids were more of a threat than the Allied flak they'd encountered over Pearl. But these young men had a right to be excited, and the PIC gave them a respectful yet playful salute. Every returning flight crew was grateful that the Akagi's commanding officer, Imperial Japanese Navy Captain Kichi Hasegawa, had continued to move the fleet's flagship southward after their dawn takeoff. In fact, he was only 190 miles north of Oahu Island when the last plane touched down. His action was especially appreciated by these last three aviators in the mission commander's plane, who, by tradition, were the last to land. They had been bingo fuel when they'd finally reached the safety of the mother ship and couldn't have stayed aloft much longer. However, in sharp contrast to the two younger flyers' elation, Commander Fuchida, occupying the Kate's middle observer seat, was experiencing conflicting emotions that had just swung from jubilation to gut-wrenching turmoil. The triumph he'd shared with the others upon landing had vanished as soon as his quick scan of Akagi's flight deck revealed that preparation for the next attack wave, absolutely vital in his mind to finish this initial battle with the Americans, was nowhere to be seen. No, it couldn't be. With growing panic, he jerked off his four-point harness, slammed back the overhead canopy, and climbed onto his seat, holding onto the top of the curved plexiglass surface to study his tired body. He stared up at the carrier's island superstructure, looking in vain for the impassive face of the task force commander, Vice Admiral Chuichi Nagumo, but couldn't spot him. Fuchida couldn't believe it. Was that conservative and taciturn old-school cruiser commander going to leave now? Just when they had the American fleet on fire and the whole Pearl Harbor naval base in chaos and vulnerable to their all important third strike? That additional assault was designed to destroy the extensive fuel tank farm, dry docks, and vital repair facilities that would put the enemy's inevitable counterattack back an additional six months or more. Fuchida's eyes were drawn slightly to the left when he spotted Commander Minoru Ginda, matching him stare for stare as he leaned against a railing high on the Admiral's bridge. He was the brilliant planner that the fleet's overall commander, Vice Admiral Isoruku Yamamoto, had assigned to formulate and develop the raid in every detail. It was Ginda who had received inspiration for the raid after watching American military training films demonstrating a successful mock raid on Pearl Harbor a few years earlier. Then he'd received additional conceptual proof from the recent British raid against the Italian fleet moored at Toronto Harbor. There, outdated aircraft had sunk three Italian battleships and shocked the world's naval community, further convincing the senior commander of the combined Japanese Imperial fleet that the Pearl Harbor raid could succeed. And it had, to a point. Surely Ginda would convince Nagumo to stick to the plan and finish the job. They'd never get another chance like this. It was imperative that Japan maximize its time to consolidate their primary gains in Asia and throughout the Western Pacific. Genda and Fuchida were longtime colleagues and had agreed during the planning phase that the first two waves of attacking aircraft would destroy as many of the American ships and planes as possible. That destruction would earn Japan a probable six months' respite from an organized, American-led counterattack against the Empire. But a third wave was deemed necessary to destroy the remaining infrastructure that would buy Japan a full year or more, forcing their new enemy to start the long campaign from San Diego and the other West Coast ports. Adding further context to Fuchida's frustration, not one of their primary targets, the American aircraft carriers, had been in port. That fact didn't preclude them from being located and sunk at a later date, perhaps during the next few days as the fleet returned to Japan, but at least today, they'd escaped. Fuchida searched Ginda's stone face in vain and received a barely perceptible shake of his friend's head. It was a small gesture, but cut like a knife plunged into Fuchida's soul. He understood its implications immediately. It was not to be. They were going home with a job unfinished. As the coldness of disappointment confirmed his fate, Fujita climbed out on the wing and jumped down onto the hard steel deck, barely acknowledging the backslapping and victorious shouts of the jubilant young sailors celebrating his return. He strode purposefully across the heavy plates, feeling the vibration as the ship's engines revved when additional power was sent to the great shafts in the bowels of the ship that would push them home. He reached the island superstructure, stepped across the sill of the open doorway, and bounded up the two flights of steel stairs to the spot where Ginda still alone. What is happening, Ginda? He demanded, already knowing the answer. The ships in the harbor are severely damaged, and the airfields and planes are largely destroyed. Pearl Harbor is helpless to defend against our next wave. We must attack the fuel tank farm and dry docks now. Genda tightened his already white-knuckled grip on the rope-covered handrail, a passionate professional who was dealing with his own surging emotions. He sympathized with his old friend's dramatic appeal, and had, in fact, already earnestly pled that very case with the reluctant admiral standing inside the bridge a few feet away. But their task force commander had already issued his orders to the Akagi's captain, so Genda's words had fallen on the ears of a mind made up. Admiral Nagumo believed his first responsibility was to protect the fleet from American counterattack, however improbable it seemed to the two young officers at that moment, and he believed that the raid was already successful enough to justify their withdrawal. Gendin knew Nagumo had not been enthusiastic about the raid in the first place, and that the veteran leader wanted the fleet back in the relative safety of home waters to prepare for the long and bloody Pacific War they'd just started. And at least in that respect, Gendin knew the Admiral was right, Ginda suddenly turned and grabbed Fuchida's arms, not in rebuke, but as a brother-in-arms. I made that case with the Admiral Fuchida, but he is adamant. He has ordered the fleet to return home. So the decision was final. Both men could only stand helplessly embracing each other at arm's length as they accepted their fate. Then, after a few meaningful seconds of silent comradeship, they separated and turned to grip the waist-high railings. They watched in silence as the busy aircraft crews wrestled the last of the planes to the waiting elevators. The two veteran aviators tasted the clean salt air and felt the great ship heel to starboard as she turned eastward toward Japan. The smell of exhaust dissipated in the freshening breeze as the Akagi accelerated, and together the pilots instinctively scanned the horizon for the enemy planes they knew weren't coming. They watched the distant destroyer screen match the turn and speed of the flagship, and as the bigger ship cut through the whitecaps, the smaller and lighter ships also began to knife smoothly through the low westerly swells. Military historians generally agree that the Pearl Harbor raid, though brilliantly planned and executed, only served to bring a reluctant America into the war. In that context, the Pearl Harbor assault was a strategic disaster. The loss of life and damage from the attack provided a severe enough shock to spur Americans into action and they enlisted in the military in droves. The naval engineers and civilian workers also effected fairly rapid repairs on the Pacific Fleet, and six of the eight battleships sunk or heavily damaged on that fateful day returned to combat by 1944. Genda and Fuchida were right to have lobbied for that third wave. Those famous Pearl Harbor fuel tanks and dry dock facilities played a big role in America's quick recovery from the attack. Genda never quit lobbying, however, and recommended throughout the coming spring that Japan should not only return and occupy Hawaii, but should also use its extensive military resources to take the battle to the American West Coast. He believed such risky and dangerous actions were necessary to preserve Japan's gains in Asia, the whole point of the Hawaiian aggression in the first place. And Admiral Yamamoto did try to rectify the Hawaiian raids' clearing lack of luck at missing the American carriers. He sent a large fleet back to the Midway Islands, lying just 1,300 miles northwest of Hawaii, the following June. He hoped to lure the American Navy into a trap and sink their three precious carriers, but the reverse happened instead. U.S. naval intelligence had broken the Japanese naval and diplomatic code sufficiently to reason that Midway was the target of a coming attack. They ambushed the Japanese carriers and sunk four of them, including the flagship Akagi, while losing only one of their own. So, after a mere six months of fighting in the Pacific, the tide turned in America's favor. And though three bitter years of intense fighting remained after the Battle of Midway, Japan was on the defensive for the remainder of the war. Finally, in August of 1945, after the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were devastated by detonation of the world's first and only nuclear weapons used in combat, Japan unconditionally surrendered. In retrospect, and ironically, the raid on Pearl Harbor, believed necessary by Japan's leaders to keep America out of their way while they absorbed most of Asia into their so-called East Asia co-prosperity sphere, only served to light the fuse of Japan's eventual destruction. From the moment the first shot was fired by the USS Ward at a Japanese midget submarine trying to slip unnoticed into the entrance to Pearl Harbor, it was only a matter of time before America's industrial capacity fully transitioned to war production and its Axis enemies were overwhelmed. The lives of the four principal Japanese naval men who envisioned and led the attack on Pearl Harbor came to very different ends. Admiral Yamamoto died when his plane was shot down by American P-38 fighters over Bougainville Island, Papua New Guinea, on April 18, 1943. He was 59 years old, was deeply mourned by the Japanese people, and is still remembered as a national hero. Admiral Nagumo committed suicide, but with a pistol shot rather than traditional dagger seppuku, while on Saipan in the northern Mariana Islands, thus avoiding capture by U.S. Marines. His death occurred on June 6, 1944, a day which was to be ever famous for the Allied landings in Normandy, France. He was 57. However, in stark contrast to the two admirals, Genda and Fuchida survived the war to great glory. Genda rose to the rank of lieutenant general in Japan's post-war military and logged 5,000 hours in both Japanese and American-made aircraft, including over 1,000 hours in the F-105 Starfighter. He also completed a long second career of public service in Japan's democratically elected national legislature as a member of the conservative Liberal Democratic Party. He died in peace as an old man on August 15, 1989. And the last of the four, the daring Fuchida, retired as a Navy captain and after the war converted to Christianity and became a prominent evangelist, even working with the noted American minister, Reverend Billy Graham. He died of natural causes on May 13, 1976, at the age of 73.